0: And as we now come to Your Word, Lord, we pray that You would teach us. We pray that You would feed us. We pray that You would nourish us. There are so many things that can distract us. So many things going on in the world today. Sicknesses, political turmoil, all sorts of things. Lord, we pray that You would give us focus And that as we study Your Word, that You would accomplish Your work in us. Grow us in Christ's likeness. Help us to understand Your Word through the power of the Spirit illuminating the text for us. All for the glory of Christ and for the good of Your people, our growth in Christ's likeness. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 16. This was the sermon that we were going to have two weeks ago when we were canceled due to snow. Uh, Unfortunately, sometimes when they plow the snow... Uh, It's impossible to get into our driveway and the streets weren't being plowed yet anyway two weeks ago. So we will continue right where we would have been picking up uh, two weeks ago in John chapter 16. We'll be looking at verses 12 to 15. Verses 12 to 15. These are very, very important verses. These are very important passages that we're looking at in this chapter. This chapter, when, when the church started looking at who the holy spirit is and what the holy spirit does this chapter provides more answers than just about any other chapter in all of scripture this scripture focuses so much on the ministry the role of the holy spirit Uh, there's so much confusion out there about the holy spirit this is a, a very important chapter for us to study And when we're talking about confusion in the church overall, the the American church, maybe the worldwide church, and the confusion that the church seems to have about the Holy Spirit, there was a book that was written in 2013 that I consider to be one of the most important books of our time that was written on the subject to correct some of the errors that are out there. The name of the book is Strange Fire, um, written by John MacArthur. It was written in response to to the proliferation and just the the overabundance of terrible unbiblical theology particularly as it relates to the holy spirit uh, which has come from the pentecostal or, or the the charismatic camp which has created so much confusion for so many people, countless people. God only knows how many people have been influenced by this terrible theology, particularly when it comes, again, to understanding who the Holy Spirit is and what His ministry is, what His function is, what He does. John MacArthur writes this in his book. He says, It's a sad twist of irony that those who claim to be most focused on the Holy Spirit are in actuality the ones doing the most to abuse, grieve, insult, misrepresent, quench, and dishonor Him. How do they do it? by attributing to him words he did not say, deeds he did not do, phenomena he did not produce, and experiences that have nothing to do with him. They boldly plaster his name on that which is not his work. Now, if you're looking for proof of that, if you need evidence, it is not difficult to back that statement up. Uh, In the age uh, that we call the information age, the age of the internet, all you need to do is a simple search on Google or, or YouTube and you can find charismatic preachers making outrageous claims, even claiming to have healed people by physically assailing them physically assaulting them. Todd Bentley. I'm not one that's that's afraid to call out names. Todd Bentley is one. uh, Only one example. He claims that in the middle of some healing service or a healing crusade that he was doing, the Holy Spirit literally instructed him to kick an elderly woman in the face in order to kick this demon out of her and so he claims that he did there's no video footage of that but you can find footage of him claiming to have done this Uh, there are videos of people uh, quote-unquote token the holy spirit in a so-called worship service Uh, that is they are pretending that the holy spirit is a joint of marijuana as they pass him around as if they're just able to pass the holy spirit around and inhale him Uh, there are videos of entire congregations i Uh, falling uh, to the floor and and writhing about as if they'd just been electrocuted. Uh, There are videos of people in a congregation uh, barking like dogs as they run up and down the aisles. Uh, One of the most popular churches in this crowd, you probably know who I'm talking about, they're known to have filled their air ducts with gold glitter. And when they turned on the air conditioning and the gold glitter started coming down, they claimed it was the presence of the Holy Spirit. There's a well-known charismatic teacher who has a TV program and on one episode that I that I caught on YouTube he was teaching his audience to speak in tongues by putting a series of sounds together creating something as incoherent as, and as unintelligible as a six-month-old baby babbling. Do, do we see that in Scripture? Do we see that that's how people spoke in tongues? When, when the example, uh, when the apostles preached on Pentecost, when they were speaking in tongues on Pentecost, did Peter say, okay, guys, here's how we do it. Put this, Try to say banana backwards, and, and then let's go faster and faster. Is that how he did it? I mean, is this what the Holy Spirit does? That's a question that we need to wrestle with. Because there are people out there who would say yes. But it is absolutely and unequivocally not the type of effects we ever, ever see the Holy Spirit producing in Scripture. And where else, what's the top authority where we can learn about the Holy Spirit and the effects that He produces in people? It's Scripture. Scripture is our top authority. Not the experiences of people, of ourselves. Our, our, our feelings, our experiences aren't our top authority. The Word of God is. Here's the danger, though. Look, it's easy to, to recognize how ridiculous and how wrong that is. I think most Christians realize that the charismatic stuff isn't biblical in in any sense whatsoever, and they they kind of want to create as much distance from those types of groups as possible. It's not difficult to identify that as being ridiculous and, and wrong. But the danger is that we go too far the other direction, that we go so far, that we go from these people who think the Holy Spirit produces insanity and all these crazy things, to the other end of the spectrum where we say, oh, we don't believe the Holy Spirit does anything. That is, the danger is that we ignore the Holy Spirit and dismiss His ministry altogether, thinking that, okay, you know, He had a ministry in the first century church, but He doesn't have any meaningful ministry to the church today in the 21st century. Both of those ends of the spectrum are wrong. Make no mistake about it. Going too far to the other direction is equally dangerous and equally harmful. And I say that because the Holy Spirit does have a very, very important role in the church today, in ministering to the church today. In J.I. Packer's words, he says this, quote, the essence of the Holy Spirit's ministry at this or any time in the Christian era is to mediate the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say that this mediation of the presence of Christ sustain, quote, is a matter of the Spirit doing whatever is necessary for the creation, sustaining, deepening, and expressing end quote, of our relationship with Christ. Do, do we need that? Do we need a deeper relationship with Christ? Do we need to be brought to the truth by the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. The farewell discourse of Christ, which is where we've uh, been for the past few months, it started back in chapter 13 and continues through to the end of chapter 16. Uh, This farewell discourse contains more information. It contains more doctrine, more teachings about the ministry of the Holy Spirit than just about any other section of Scripture. Uh, throughout the farewell discourse, we've learned at least four very important things about the Holy Spirit. Uh, first, in John chapter 14, verse 16, we learn that the Holy Spirit is, as Jesus called him, another helper or advocate or paraclete who would take Jesus' place in leading and in discipling Christ's people. The second thing that we learned in chapter 14, verse 26 is that the Holy Spirit would teach the disciples all things and would help the disciples remember all of the things that Christ had taught them. The third thing that we've learned about the Holy Spirit in chapter 15, verse 26, is that the Holy Spirit would testify, that is, He would bear witness before the world of Christ. And now in the the section that we just covered in our previous lesson in John, in chapter 16, verses 8 to 11, we saw that he would convict the world. He has a ministry to the world in which he would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, drawing the elect to Christ and applying Christ's saving work to the individual sinner. In the passage that we come to today, we're going to see a fifth thing. We saw in the previous passage, his ministry to the world. Now we're going to see his ministry to the church. We're going to see this list grow by, by one. Uh, the previous passage covered his ministry to the world. Now we're going to talk about his ministry to the, to the church. This is not what he does to the world. The, the things that we see in this passage today are not the things that he does with the unbeliever, but to the church throughout this age. And that's the point of this passage. That's what we're going to see as we go through this. So having instructed the disciples on how the Holy Spirit would minister to, would minister to now continues by instructing the disciples on how the Holy Spirit would minister to them primarily, uh, but to the church also throughout the age to come, which started on Pentecost secondarily and by extension. So our passage today is John chapter 16, verses 12-15, to where Jesus continues and says this. He says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of Mine... And will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Now let's unpack that a little bit. Jesus starts by saying uh, many more things uh, I have to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. He's not keeping Information from them. He's not withholding anything from his disciples in order to deceive them by concealing something that's important and something that they'd look back and say, "Oh, if I would have known that, then I might have changed my mind." No. What he makes clear here is that there were a lot of things that there were many things that the disciples they weren't ready to learn. They they still had yet to learn all these things, and yet they were just not ready. They weren't there. They were still too weak they were still too fragile still too young in their faith and in their understanding to bear the weight of further teachings keep in mind that they were just beginning to understand that Jesus really was about to die but they were still light years away from understanding the significance of Jesus's death they knew that he was going to die they were coming to terms with that But they had no idea of the significance of His death. They didn't know why He had to die. And without a solid understanding of the significance of the cross, one simply cannot and should not proceed beyond that point. One of the first things that a Christian should understand is not only that Jesus did die, but why He had to die. And if somebody, doesn't, if somebody hasn't come to terms with that, you don't want to take them into the deeper and heavier issues. And there are many. Nothing in the Christian life is going to make sense without a solid understanding of what happened on Calvary, of Christ's substitutionary atonement. What is the cross all about? What exactly happened on that day? I mean, there are countless countless incorrect answers to that kind of question but there's only one correct answer and if a person doesn't know what that one correct answer is they're not going to be able to make any sense of any doctrine or any teachings or anything that proceeds after that it's kind of like math Uh, Those of you who have uh, taken geometry, for example, you understand that you can't just open to the back of the textbook at the beginning of the school year and and expect to understand anything that's being taught in the back of the textbook. No, there's an order. Uh, There's a sequence of principles and theorems that build upon one another so that as you go through it, you're, you're, you're building. It's like building blocks. And by the time you get to the end, then you understand it, but only because you've understood everything that came up to that point. Nobody teaches their kids how to read by handing them Shakespeare. Uh, you know, a copy of a book that's written for very uh, mature-minded, academically-minded intellectual adults. No, you start kids on a book that's simple, uh, that teaches them the basics about reading. In the same way, the person who does not understand why Jesus had to die. The person that does not understand the purpose of the cross. The things that are built upon completely lost. They're going to be way over their head. When it comes to things that are built upon the foundation of a right understanding of the cross. There's a widely known and respected Presbyterian author who posted... Uh, the following on his social media this past month. He said, the heart of the gospel is the cross, and the cross is all about giving up power. End quote. No, it's not. No, it's not. This guy's written dozens of books. He's been a pastor for decades. And he got this absolutely 100% wrong. The cross is not all about giving up power. It was about Christ dying in the place of ruined sinners who were destined for hell, who would be going to hell and could not be saved without the perfect sacrifice for sin taking their place, standing in their place, taking God's wrath against their sin in their stead. The cross was all about substitutionary atonement. It's substitutionary because Jesus was a substitute. He stood in the place of all who believe in Him, dying the death that we deserved to die. And it's atonement because Christ's blood covers our sins, reconciling us to God. Now, we don't use that word very often, atonement. Uh, If you need a dictionary definition, the American Heritage Dictionary gives us this definition of the word atonement. It says, it's, quote, the reconciliation of God and humans brought about by the redemptive life and death of Jesus. 100%, A+. plus. So to say that the cross is all about anything other than the substitutionary atonement suggests that a person isn't ready to proceed beyond the very, very basics of the faith. As for this Presbyterian minister and, and author, To be honest, he's been a driving force behind the social justice cult, which teaches an entirely different gospel. So maybe, maybe, it should be no surprise that he does not seem to understand the cross. And that's where the disciples were at this point. They understood that Jesus was going to die. They were coming to terms with that. But they didn't know why. They didn't understand the significance of the cross they still had so much to learn. Jesus would, he would die and he would resurrect, and for 40 days after he was raised from the grave, he would teach the disciples between his resurrection and his ascension. He'd spend 40 days instructing them in, in some deeper things. But even then, they would still, after these 40 days, they would still need the spirit of truth to guide them into all truth. And what this is, friends, is a picture of the gracious, wonderful way that God grows us and teaches us and instructs us. The style in which he reveals truths to us is described as being progressive in nature, not to be confused with any modern communist movements. It's progressive in nature in the sense that it starts with something that's very simple simple things signs symbols images and it builds on top of that that's why in the old testament we see signs and images and and shadows of christ consider the way uh, the christ was foretold in all the the signs and the symbols and the shadows of, of the temple, for example. How the temple and the feasts, and especially all the sacrifices pointed to Him. Consider how even the animal that was slain as Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, how even that animal that was slain points to Christ. Consider how the ark points to Christ. How all these signs and symbols and shadows, they all pointed to Christ. They were all just the basics. Very easy esque ways of understanding doctrine that's what the substitute, uh, substitutionary atonements in the levitical law were all about it was a picture of christ it wasn't saying that the animals were actually sufficient it was reminding the people that death is the consequence of sin hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 says this, It says, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they continually offer year by year, make perfect those who draw near. That is to say that nobody, not one single person, was ever forgiven because an animal's blood was shed for them. Hebrews 10.4 goes on to say, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The animals that were sacrificed, really they, they, did, they had two purposes. There were two things that they reminded the people of. Number one, they perpetually reminded the Israelites that the wage of sin is death. Literal death, like spilling blood for sin. And B, they reminded the people uh, that we need a perfect Unblemished Savior, that we need a Lamb of God who could take our sin away. See, there isn't a different way to salvation. There isn't a different means of salvation in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. There's a continuity. People have always been saved only one way by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ. Or before Christ, they would have just known him as the, the promised seed, the promised Messiah. Faith in Him alone. Paul makes that very clear when he demonstrates that Father Abraham was what you might call the prototype of the Christian faith. Abraham was saved not by upholding the law, because he was before the law. He was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the promised Messiah alone. Just like we are today. It was to be the ministry of the Holy Spirit, referred to here in our passage in John as the Spirit of Truth, to guide the disciples specifically and primarily into all truth. And while the Holy Spirit does the same for Christians today, He, he guides us into truth. There was a more uh, specific, a more direct sense in which the Holy Spirit. Uh, did this for the disciples, since it was the disciples who would go on to not only uh, write most of the New Testament, but the, te- the New Testament that they didn't necessarily write, uh, they oversaw, for example, Luke. Uh, Luke wasn't one of the disciples, he wasn't an apostle, but Paul oversaw his ministry. He was uh, Paul's companion. The author of Hebrews also gives us a clear understanding, a clear indication that the apostles had the responsibility of providing what would be the final witness to Christ. We read this in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world." What that's saying is that there is no new revelation. In these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. But there's no new revelation since the generation that witnessed the Son. There's nothing that God has given us since the apostles died. The Holy Spirit, the the Spirit of truth, would be the one to guide them, to guide the disciples and those whom they oversaw in the writing of Scripture, into all truth. And of course, as we've covered before, that doesn't mean that He would uh, guide them into the truth about everything. They weren't rocket scientists or anything. What it means is that the New Testament writings, the New Testament documents, would be the final body of teaching and doctrine that God gave His people. Now this is one of the main places where the Charismatic camp, the Pentecostal camp, goes so, so wrong because they claim to still receive revelation from God. Uh, they, they believe that Scripture is good. Uh, okay, great. Uh, they believe that, that Scripture is God's Word. Okay, that's great. But they also believe that God is still giving revelation today to individuals privately. By the way, That's what a lot of cults believe also. If you know uh, the history of the Latter-day Saints, uh, Mormons, they believe that Joseph Smith received additional revelation privately. No witnesses. No no evidence. But that he received it privately. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses actually believe the same thing about their leaders. They believe that they've received private revelation. That's why they've actually changed their doctrine from time to time. But you'll hear Charismatics saying things like, God told me this, or God told me that. The problem with that is that it's not falsifiable. The problem with that is that it can't be tested. If somebody says, God told me to do this or to do that, how do you know that God really did? How do you know that what they said is actually something God said? Or maybe they're just making it all up in order for you to just fall in line and do what they say. How do we know that God spoke to them? And why did He speak to them instead of somebody else? The interesting thing is that as you look at church history, you won't find a single one of the faithful voices over the course of the past 2,000 years that have made this claim that God was speaking privately and revealing things privately to them. It really only got started a little bit more than 120 years ago or so uh, when the Pentecostal movement started at the Azusa Street Revival. And you know why, as you look through church history, do you know why none of the faithful saints before about 120 years ago claimed to be receiving private revelations? Because they weren't. That's why they didn't claim to be. And neither is anyone else who claims to be receiving private revelation. Uh, John Owen uh, put it in a very clear, very succinct, very logical manner. He, He argued it this way. He said, quote, if private revelations agree with the Scriptures, they are needless, but if they disagree, they are false, end quote. Friends, God does still speak to the world today. We don't deny that the world uh, needs to hear from God, and that God does speak to the world, but God is not giving further revelation. Rather, He's still speaking to the world today through the closed canon of Scripture, scripture is God speaking to the world today scripture is inspired it is breathed out by the spirit of truth by the the Holy Spirit it is inerrant it is unassailable and it is sufficient see this is where we part ways with people who claim to receive private revelation Uh, they don't believe that the scriptures are sufficient if scripture is sufficient then we don't need additional revelation but somebody who says, oh, I need additional revelation, is basically saying Scripture is insufficient. The truth about the Holy Spirit, the truth about the Spirit of truth, uh, guided, the, the truth that the Holy Spirit guided the disciples into is all contained in your disciples this, uh, this way. He's Richard Phillips summarizes a task that was given to the disciples this way. This way, he says, quote, their work was primarily to provide the fixed revelation that would be the standard for the church in all subsequent ages. And for this work, Jesus promised the teaching and guiding ministry of the Holy Spirit. End quote. So we should see that first and foremost, the Holy Spirit would, would be ministering to the disciples this way but he does minister to the church as well. We're going to get to that. We should notice when Jesus says he, the Holy Spirit, will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. That should kind of ring a bell a little bit. It's very similar to something that Jesus said back in chapter 8. If you look at chapter 8, verse 26, there you'll find Jesus speaking to the unbelieving Jewish leaders, and he says this to them. He says, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. Earlier in chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is all talking about how the Father and the Son are, are inseparable. They're, they're, they're working toward the same thing. Jesus isn't acting on his own. He's not outside of the Father's will in what he was doing. So now Jesus says of the Holy Spirit, he will not speak to you on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. So he's saying the same thing of the Holy Spirit that he was saying of himself back in chapter 8 and back in chapter five do you see the similarities the overlap in what's being said here so what does jesus mean by this statement about the holy spirit it means that just like jesus never acted independently of the father but walked in the will of the father at all times and thus glorified the father in all things so too the spirit of truth the holy spirit wouldn't act independently of christ So the Holy Spirit won't act independently of Christ. Christ won't act independently of the Father. They're all working together. The three persons of the Trinity are all working together. The Holy Spirit's function would only be to serve and to glorify Christ. Christ's purpose was to serve and glorify the Father. And to this end, all that the Holy Spirit would teach the disciples and all that He would inspire them to write in the New Testament, all of it, Throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, but speaking of the disciples here in the New Testament, all that they wrote would point to Christ and would glorify Him. It's all about Him. Not only the New Testament, but the Old Testament. It's all about Him. Every letter of every book all points to Jesus. We can say this of both Testaments. It's all inspired. It's all breathed out by God. It's all Christ-centered. It's all Christ-glorifying. If you have an understanding of the Scripture that isn't all of these things, I can guarantee you, you have the wrong understanding of a passage of Scripture. But when you consider the New Testament, it's interesting to note that you can really break the New Testament up into three different categories. Uh, First of all, what happened. Second of all, the significance of what happened or, or what it means and third, what's next? So first, it tells us the history of what happened. The New Testament starts right out of the gate with four eyewitnesses, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, telling us about Jesus' life, telling us about Jesus' ministry, starting with His, his birth and, and two of them, including His teachings, including His Miracles. Each one of them concluding with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. One of them, Matthew, going on to tell us about the ascension of Christ. Uh, the book of Acts, which was also written by Luke, starts with uh, a historic account of the ascension of Christ as well. But this is part of what Jesus means when he says, He will take of mine and will disclose it to you. He means that the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Truth would reveal to them and through their writings, not only who Jesus is, but what He has done and the significance of what He has done. Now this reminds us, by the way, that the Christian faith is the only faith, the only religion that is truly an historical faith. That is to say, it's based on events that actually happened in history. It's not a philosophy. You can look at uh, various religions in the world where it's really nothing more than a a strange philosophy like Buddhism or Confucianism. It's not a theory like Hinduism or Marxism, which make no mistake about it, is becoming a religion. Uh, It's not a bunch of mythical tales. I mean, we believe that the events recorded in Scripture are true. Why? Because we believe that they really happened. We really do believe that Jesus was raised from the grave. I'll I'll never forget an encounter I had with a woman here in in this church when I first started pastoring here. Uh, We had Sunday school out here in the sanctuary, and I don't remember exactly what we were talking about, but for whatever reason, I brought up uh, the book of Jonah and the whale, uh, or the big fish, which was probably a whale. And, And this elderly woman Uh, looked at me and and just started laughing and said, you don't really believe that Jonah could survive being swallowed by a fish, do you? And I was immediately very concerned. Uh, My my response then was the same response I have now, which is to say, I believe everything in Scripture that's recorded as history really did happen. If I can believe that God created the earth out of nothing for three days, if I can believe that... God raised Jesus from the dead? Why would I struggle to believe that somebody could survive 3 days in the belly of a large fish if God wanted them to? It's it's an issue of consistency. It, see, if you if you if you take some parts of scripture and say, well this is mythological or this didn't really happen even though it's written as though it did, how do you separate that from things like the resurrection? So if you're going to say that Jonah wasn't really swallowed by a large fish, what would stop you from saying, well, Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead? Any understanding of Christianity that denies the historical, factual nature of Scripture and the events recorded as history therein, especially the events surrounding the crucifixion of Christ, are simply something other than Christianity. To deny the historicity of Scripture is to deny the truthfulness of Scripture the reliability of Scripture and it denies the truth if you deny the truth of Scripture you stand on sinking sand outside the gates of Christian Orthodoxy the first scriptural category we have in the New Testament is historic a testimony of what happened specifically that Jesus ministered that he died and that he was resurrected from the grave. It's an eyewitness testimony of what happened. The second category explains what happened. That is to say, the second category is doctrinal. That's to say that there are certain historic truths, there are certain understandings of the real historical events uh, recorded in Scripture that the church has always affirmed. And they are recorded in the books we refer to to as the epistles. So what was the significance of Jesus' death? What happened on the cross? How can we, on an individual level, how can we be saved by what Jesus did? The epistles explain that. Romans is a great one that explains it. See, it's great to be able to affirm the the historic nature of the Christian faith, the fact that these things really happened, but history means nothing and is powerless to save if it just is nothing more than information and we don't understand its significance. That is, without a doctrinal explanation of historic events, we are still left wondering and confused and lost. And this is what we find throughout the epistles. The book of Acts would actually be classified as being both uh, historic and doctrinal. We find both in there. Uh, But the epistles, uh, the letters of the apostles, would add explanation to what had happened historically. There's an author, uh, J. Gresham Machen, who illustrated this with, with great clarity. He writes this. He says, quote, Christ died, that's history, Christ died for our sins, that's doctrine see how those two those are two different things but you need one with the other and without both of them they're meaningless got to have both this is where faith and doctrine come in there are several books uh, that demonstrate that most historians believe that Jesus was a real person, that He was a literal person. Uh, and, and some will even say, yeah, you know, there's a lot of evidence to support the idea that He really did die on a cross. There is sufficient historical evidence for even an unbeliever to affirm these things, to affirm uh, that Jesus really did live. We can prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that He existed. And if we can prove that, uh, it's not difficult to prove that he did die if he lived he, he had to have died somehow right but how do you prove that he died for the sins of his people how do you prove that he died in their place that's where doctrine comes in and doctrine must be received by faith doctrine must be received by faith Machin concluded uh, of the historic and doctrinal elements of the New Testament writing this. He says, quote, Without these two elements joined in an absolutely indissoluble union, there is no Christianity. If we just believe that the events of the New Testament, that Jesus died and rose again, if we believe those but we don't understand why, There is no Christianity. There is no faith. So first, the New Testament tells us what happened. Second, it tells us the significance of what happened and what we are to do in light of what happened. And third, it tells us what's going to happen. Jesus says that the Spirit of truth would disclose to you, to the disciples, what is to come. And of course, the New Testament canon concludes with the book of Revelation, which is a prophetic book and gives us an assurance that God, uh, that God not only wins in the end, but that there has actually never been a time when He was losing. He not only wins in the end, but He's been winning all along. Every toward the glorious end that He has ordained. That's the message of the book of Revelation in a nutshell. Now I've pointed out that Jesus was primarily speaking to the disciples, but that the words he speaks here also apply to the church throughout this age in a secondary manner. And what I mean by that, what I mean by that is that the Holy Spirit would not only guide the disciples into uh, the, the historic Christian faith, the truths of the historic Christian faith, but that the same Spirit who breathed uh, out the scriptures through the pens of the apostles would also guide the church throughout this age to not only understand the Scriptures, but to believe them. To believe them with a desire to understand them and with a desire to follow and obey them. The Holy Spirit is still doing this. The Holy Spirit still glorifies Christ by illuminating the texts of Scripture and imparting faith to us. Even our faith is the work of the Holy Spirit. When Paul tells us of the the fruit of the Spirit in the book of Galatians, one of the things that kind of gets lost in translation there, there are a lot of things that get lost in translation, but there's something very important here in the fruit of the Spirit. When Paul lists faithfulness, the, the Greek word that's there is actually just faith. Faith. That's it. Not faithfulness. Faithfulness is an okay translation, but we should understand that the faith that we have is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Faith is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from His ongoing ministry to the church, there is no understanding and there's no faith. And where there's no understanding and where there's no faith, there is no Christianity at all. So why is the church here at all today? Because of the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit in convicting the world, bringing people into the fold of Christ, and bringing them to the truth by illuminating the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit guided the disciples to write and oversee the writing of the New Testament. Today, the Holy Spirit still guides Christ's sheep into the truth apart from him apart from the holy spirit the words in our bibles are are just words they're they're powerless meaningless words if the spirit does not bring them to our hearts i mean think about the way that an unbeliever sees the bible you know they'll they'll say okay i can affirm this but i can't affirm that you know they'll sweep the doctrines derived from the historical events described in Scripture under the rug, claiming that the doctrines that we have are there because, I don't know, you know we'll, we'll come up with an excuse. How about uh, because they wanted to make a name for themselves? How about because there was a, a, a massive hypnosis among the disciples and so they were actually hallucinating? Uh, how about the, you know, they, they just received, they inherited mythological accounts of these events long after the events were over? It's not even close to being accurate. None of these things are even close to being accurate. Although you'll find that unbelievers try to excuse the doctrine in so many silly ways. No, the the, the books of the New Testament, including the Gospels, they were all written by eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry. One thing that's very clear about Luke's uh, testimony, he's, he's the one who wasn't, Uh, he's one of the ones that wasn't a, a disciple or an apostle one of the things that's clear is he went and he interviewed people he went that's that's why we learn so much about mary in the book of luke is because luke was sent to learn more and so luke went and talked with eyewitnesses and he recorded what eyewitnesses said it's all eyewitness testimony so the holy spirit continues to illuminate the text for us. He continues to give us understanding of God's Word. He continues to convict and convince us that the Scriptures are true and trustworthy. And He continues to fill us with faith. The Holy Spirit's focus, friends, is never, ever on Himself. His purpose is never, ever, ever, to bring attention to himself or to bring glory to himself. His focus is entirely upon Christ. We can therefore be sure that any movement or any teaching that focuses on the Holy Spirit the way that the modern charismatic movement focuses on the Holy Spirit, is not, ironically, following the leading or the guidance of the Holy Spirit at all, since the Holy Spirit would not be drawing attention or glory to Himself, but would only be glorifying Christ. The Holy Spirit, think of it this way, the Holy Spirit is kind of like a flashlight. You use a flashlight in the darkness. Every night uh, before bedtime, I let our dogs out, and I bring a flashlight with me, because without the flashlight, I don't see the dogs. I can't see the dogs. But what's interesting is that I can't see the flashlight either. I can only see what the flashlight is shining on, is focusing on. And that's the way that the Holy Spirit works. J.I. Packer writes this. He says, "Quote: The Spirit's message to us is never look at Me, listen to Me, come to Me, get to know Me, but always look at Him and see His glory, to know Him and, him and hear His Word. Go to Him, and have life, get to know Him, and taste His gift of joy and peace." End quote. The Spirit always, always glorifies Christ. And He continues to guide us to the truth about Christ today. That's why Paul tells us things like, walk by the Spirit, or be filled with the Spirit. It's because the Spirit is guiding us. He not only guided us to Christ, but He guides us into a deeper walk and a deeper understanding of Christ. A deeper understanding of Him. A deeper love for Him. A deeper sense of devotion unto Him. Whatever we need at any given time in the Christian life, whether that be knowledge or understanding or uh, encouragement or assurance or joy or peace in the midst of sorrow, uh, steadfastness in the midst of persecution, the list goes on and on. Anything else, The Holy Spirit is the one who is with us and in us and ready to teach us and give freely and richly to us. Our salvation is Trinitarian in nature. Jesus says, All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose to you. To put that in plainer terms, Jesus is essentially saying the Holy Spirit will guide you into the truth of all things concerning me, concerning Christ, and yet things at the same time concerning the Father, because all things that the Father has are mine. That's essentially what Jesus is saying there. And by the way, this verse destroys the modalist heretics, by the way, those who deny the triunity of God. Are being mentioned. The modalist would say, well, there's there's only one God in one person. There aren't three persons. That would be three gods. Uh, T.D. Jakes would be an example of a modalist. He says that uh, they're different manifestations of God. No, they are three persons of God. If you take the modalist interpretation and plug it into a verse like this, he's sounding like he's insane, talking about things that he's going to do that he doesn't know that he's going to do, It just doesn't make any sense. No, we are saved in a Trinitarian manner. The Father has elected us and has given us unto the Son. The Son has redeemed us through His sacrificial substitutionary atonement. And the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to us, guiding us into the truth about Jesus. The Holy Spirit guides and equips us with all that we need friends to walk in joy to walk in peace and in spiritual power that's his ministry toward the church that's exactly what we will experience in this world as the church continues to bear witness to christ despite the persecution we might face despite the hatred of the world listen the power that we need is not a power that manifests itself by wiggling around on the floor or by barking like dogs or by mindless babbling. No, the power that will change your life is the power that is provided by the Holy Spirit because He alone can and He alone will guide and empower us to understand and to believe the Scriptures and to love and to live for Christ above everything else. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the way that Your Word instructs us. And we thank You for the presence of the Holy Spirit giving us understanding of Your Word. Father, we understand that were it not for the Holy Spirit illuminating your text, revealing your mind through, through the study of your Word. That your Word would just be words. That we, we wouldn't be filled with faith. That we, that we wouldn't have spiritual understanding where we need it. And so we thank you, not only for sending Christ to live the perfect life and to die the death that we deserve to die, But we thank you that when he came to you, he asked you, Father, to send the Holy Spirit. And you and he sent the Holy Spirit unto the church to lead us into the truth about Christ. We can claim no credit for ourselves. All glory is yours, Father. You are the one who has granted us understanding. You're the one who has filled us with faith. You're the one who has granted us repentance from sin. And so we praise You and we thank You for all that You have done and continue to do through the work of the Holy Spirit today. We pray, O Lord. We pray for our community. And we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit that many would be drawn to Christ for His glory.